0: What better way to start the week than with an episode of the official SASTA podcast brought to you by me, Harry Stebbings of the 20 Minute VC, at hstebbings on Snapchat, and the main man, Jason Lemkin, at jasonlk on Twitter. Now, for today's show, we have one of the masters of sales, and more specifically, helping salespeople close more deals faster. So I'm thrilled to welcome Matthew Bellows. Now, Matthew is the founder at Yesware. Yesware serves more than 750,000 salespeople at companies like IBM, Groupon, Salesforce, Twitter. Yelp, VMware, the list goes on. And and prior to Yesware, Matthew was the VP of Sales at Vivox, and before that, he was GM at Floodgate, acquired by Zynga, and founder and CEO of WGR Media, acquired by CNET Networks. Remember, if you love the show today and want to see more Sasta episodes, just head over to sasta.com, that's S-A-A-S-T-R.com, where you can find all the shows and the show notes. However, for now, I'm delighted to hand over the mic to the main man, Matthew Bellows, founder and CEO at Yesware. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Matthew, so fantastic to have you on the official SASTA podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Great to be here, Harry.
0: Now, I'd love to start off by hearing a bit about you and how you came to found Yesware and the
1: origin story. Well, um, we started Yesware about six years ago, and it was inspired by my time as a salesperson and a sales you know, manager with a twofold goal. One, help salespeople be more effective, help them close more deals and make more money and two, gather the data from their activity so that managers and directors and VPs could be more successful at scaling their organizations.
0: And, and what was the aha moment for you? Was there a clear defining moment?
1: Yeah, the moment was, you know, when I was standing up in front of my board of directors at my previous job, presenting my 30, 60, 90-day pipeline, telling them that we were going to close such and such a deal in three months and so so and so a deal in six months for hundreds of thousands of dollars, and realizing that I really had no data to back up those assertions. And it, it struck me as an incredibly uh, inefficient and dangerous place for me to be. And I thought, you know, if we can solve this problem, then we'll uh, we'll have a big, very big company.
0: Now, this, this is a very general question, but you, you mentioned data there twice, and it's one that always entices me. And it's, is sales now an art or a science?
1: Uh, sales has always been both of an art and a science. The art is um, very much about person-to-person relationships. And collaboration, how you work with people on your, in your company to get a deal done and how you work with people at another company to get a deal done. That's largely art. Um, but science is very much about who you contact, how often you reach out. Um, how, what kind of company you reach out to, etc. And, and that's very well-known data science.
0: You help 750,000 people sell more and more efficiently. So I think we could consider you one of the masters of sales. Um, so I want to start then today with how we first connected. And it was from Fred at Rainforest QA, one of his uh, tweets. Uh, and it said about founders needing to sell a lot of their product before hiring a sales team. You replied that you had to hit a 1 million guideline for the founders selling their own product. So I'd love to hear how the personal selling journey was for you and the challenge you faced in the race for the first million dollar sales?
1: Well, that's a that's a rough guideline for me, but I think it's, it's served me well and served companies that I've advised over the years well, because it means that, especially for someone who's not a salesperson who started a company, you need to think about doing some sales yourself. One of the common mistakes that non-salespeople founders make when they're starting a business, is I'm going to just go out and hire a salesperson, and they'll be ma- magically able to get this done while I focus on the product or the uh, engineering or the accounting or whatever my expertise is. And I think that's a real problem. As a sales manager, as, as a founder, you have a, an incredibly inbuilt advantage as a salesperson, and you just you do need to be able to close the first you know X amount of business and i would say roughly a million dollars of revenue before you start to hire somebody else because you want to make sure that one it's sellable and you have an advantage and if you can't do it i don't think anyone can and two that you have the confidence that when the new salesperson comes in you know they're going to look at your activity and say hey if he can do it and bring in a million bucks then i can definitely do it
0: would you argue that actually it's almost impossible to hire out a sales team if you've never done the sales yourself
1: uh, it's not impossible to hire them, but it's impossible to make them effective.
0: How can you know what you're looking for if you
1: haven't done it? It's tough, but I mean, people people make bad sales hires all the time. <laughs> it's a it's a great way to waste venture capital money, but I wouldn't I wouldn't recommend it.
0: So, how did you then, in that uh, race for the million, when you were selling the product yourself, how did your your strategy and approach alter as you improved the sales process as you got closer and closer to the one million?
1: Well, I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a sales guy, so I've done sales for startups for long periods of time and run teams. So I felt very confident that I could sell the product. What I did was I hired, I brought in uh, well, we had a marketing intern, basically a guy named Paul Hackey, a hotshot just out of college, super smart, hardworking, funny as all. And, uh, I said, Hey, you know, you've been doing this marketing thing. Do you want to try sales with me? And we'll see if we can try to sell this thing. And he was like, yeah, sure. I'm up for it. And so when he closed Box. Um, Originally, one of our first 12 enterprise deals, he closed box with very little help from me. I realized, OK, now we can scale the sales team because this new college kid as talented as he is uh can close a big deal like that then i think we can hire more people like that
0: and then in terms of there you go hire you know hit a great milestone with getting box how do you then look to hire scale out the sales team do you adopt jason Lempkin's approach of hiring two sales reps and doing the comparison what was your process with scaling up the sales team
1: well this was a place where i i made a lot of mistake actually Of, of one well you could say one very big mistake instead of taking jason's advice and hiring two more people and adding them to Paul's team, I said, oh, we just need to find more people like Paul. And I went out and hired seven or eight of them. And, you know, Paul's a rare guy. (laughs) It's hard to find more people like Paul. And so we went through a long, painful process of discovering that just throwing people sales leads and expecting them to do as good a job as, as Paul and I could you know, it was not a good approach. What do you think and actually, I, what
0: do you think made Paul so special?
1: Well, um, it's a combination of these, you know, he's sort of one of these 10 X performers. He just he's he's smart, he's dedicated, he's hardworking, he's also extremely personable. He's also super dedicated to improving. So he just focuses on what he missed out on and what he could do better. And so he's extremely coachable. All things together made him a great first hire. I just wish we had moved a little more slowly on the subsequent hires.
0: What what were the other learnings? You said you'd made some big mistakes in terms of of the scaling out.
1: I mean, that's the major one. The other one, I think, is the question that I think all founders face, especially founders with sales backgrounds. When do you hire a sales executive uh, to run the team? Like, I kind of thought, hey, I can both be CEO and VP of sales because I was a VP of sales before and I was a CEO before. And I think, uh, you know, upon reflection, I would have done better to hire maybe, so have Paul, add two, maybe lose one, add two, maybe lose one, and then hire a sales manager right there. Instead, I sort of like tried to do both for too long a period of time. And, um, and then basically realized this wasn't working and almost had to hire a vp of sales and then almost start again
0: and then in terms of specialization obviously as as you said it's incredibly tough as you scale up being the founder and the, the head of sales how how much of a role did sales specialization itself within the sales team play for you
1: so at the start we didn't have any. We just had we just had salespeople. We didn't have an SDR team or a subsequent. You know we had a we had a sales one sales operations person who was managing Salesforce. And I think that's right. I don't think you start with an SDR and a, and a salesperson. I think you start with a core team of sales executives, and then subsequently when you can do the ROI on on a sdr team do that that's what we did we we added wait until several years later before we added an sdr team
0: and and now we've established uh, the, the sales team and, and the core there of sales reps that you mentioned in terms of establishing the sales cadence how should we go about approaching this process with the sales cycle
1: the the single the most important thing is start to realize how how much you're selling your product for, what's the annual contract value. And that's going to differ between what's actually happening and what your plan was for that to happen. But you know, within six months of hiring one or two or three salespeople, you can start to to look at the number of deals they're closing and how much they're closing for. And then realize, okay, now I have, you know, um, a $5,000 a year product, or I have a $50,000 a year product, or a $500,000 a year product. And based on that, you know, uh, what kind of salespeople you can afford. That that was something that we, we we were pretty much inside sales from the beginning. And that matched our annual contract value. What ACV um, do you think really justifies
0: having an inside sales team?
1: Well, there there's a ton of data about this. Um, Pacific Crest does some excellent research on this but uh, but at a high level, I think you're looking for an annual contract value of $50,000 or more before you would have an outside any outside people, and about $5,000 or more before you'd have any inside salespeople.
0: Absolutely. And what, what do you find the common flaws to be, though, when, when witnessing other people's sales cycles and, and the common mistakes that they make?
1: Well, the single biggest mistake that I see people make and that we've made ourselves is Assuming you actually know what you're talking about. Uh, there, there is a tremendous amount of uncertainty with this process. Um, and if you read the blogs, you know, it's all very clear that you should measure your funnel in this way. And here's how you should address churn. And it all seems like everyone's got it figured out. But actually, uh, no one has it figured out. Um, and, and even when you talk to, you know, sales leaders of publicly held companies, they're continually reorganizing their sales effort and changing their sales motion and, and redoing the role of SDRs, et cetera. So, uh, the first problem is if you think you've actually, you know what you're doing and you're certain about it. Once you, once you get past that, then you start to start to have some room for thinking about okay, what do I what do I want to experiment on? What do I want to try to figure out? And then how can I do that?
0: You, you, you mentioned when we were talking about the scaling out that you know you'd hire one and then hire two and then maybe one would go. In terms of employee churn, how do you look to keep a, a good culture whilst having employee churn and not creating a culture of kind of um, it's easy for salespeople to be fearful if they don't hit targets. And how do you fit the balance of kind of ambition to hit targets without the fear?
1: <laughs> that is a world-class question. That, that is, is a, the one I've very. That is, that is that is the role of a great sales manager, uh, effectively balancing enthusiasm for the work and the challenge and uh holding people accountable uh when they don't do well. I I, I would say that um largely speaking the best people that i've seen and actually i would not count myself in that in this category but the the at sales management the best people that i've seen throw their heart and soul into helping every single rep beat their number and then have the the spine to be able to give people honest feedback about when the fit is not right for them the the single uh, insight that i think drives that realizing that the people who are failing to meet their quota are also they're in pain too they're struggling too they don't want to be unsuccessful. And so the message is, and I think it can be honest, I need to help you find a place where you can be more successful because it's not working here.
0: Implementing a constant feedback loop whereby they're not surprised when it doesn't work out because you've constantly suggested for reasons that it's not working.
1: Well, I think what one of the great things about sales is, as a profession is that you get feedback every single day you go to work. And so you always should know if you're paying attention as a salesperson, you always should know where you're standing. Uh, you know who calls you back, you know who doesn't, you know who uh, answers your email and doesn't. you know how much money you make at the end of every week and month and quarter. So there should be no th- there's very little uh, ambiguity when it comes to performance and sales.
0: One common reason for failings that I often hear from sales leaders is we just can't find the right people. And I spoke to Bill Binch uh, on the show a couple of months ago, and he said, with regards to the sales team, it's always good to overhire, to have extra capacity. So what's your take on overhiring?
1: uh I- <laughs> i don't i don't i think it's a mistake to overhire It's very hard to get to know somebody in an interview process naturally, you're going to hire people that don't end up working out and whether that percentage is uh you know five percent of your new hires or fifty percent can be the difference between, you know, making your number for the year or not. So you want to try to get it right as much as you can beforehand, but realize that there's going to be mistakes. And the worst thing you can do is try to perpetuate that mistake and make an unsuccessful person successful. What does your interview process look like for for sales reps? Um, we, we do the the most effective technique for us has been to get referrals from people on the sales team. So we we ask people in our network, we're hiring three SDRs coming up. In fact, we are hiring three SDRs coming up. We're having a sales social event in Boston where people come to the office, meet the team, get to hang out, see other people in a sort of relaxed no interview process. They can see where we work and what it's like to work there, and then basically uh, you know decide who wants to interview for a job. Um, and then we start with a, a phone screen and then another phone screen with a possible manager, and then we bring them in for a series of interviews that take anywhere between three and five hours to complete. And at the end of that process, you know, we're, we're ready to make them an offer or not.
0: And I'd love, I'd love to dive into a quick fire called 60 seconds So I say a short statement and you give me your immediate thoughts. How does that sound?
1: I don't know what you're going to ask. So I'm ready to go.
0: <laughs> so let's talk about improving email open rates. What are your recommendations?
1: Um, the single biggest thing that you can do is be, uh, is do ten minutes of research before you send the email, and be personal, be relevant. Talk about something that you have in common. Talk about something you noticed. Talk about something shared interest that you have with the person. Mm-hmm. That's going to set you apart from ninety percent of people that send emails. What tools could you not live without? Well, we we uh, we live and die by Yesware here at Yesware, so that <laughs> that would be number one on my list. Um. <laughs> You know, in the old days, I would be tempted to say Salesforce, but uh, more and more I'm finding companies that are starting businesses without a CRM and just using Yesware as their main repository of uh, company data, at least for a certain period of time. We can't live without uh, Gmail or Outlook. We certainly can't live without our cell phones.
0: And what do you know now that you wish you'd known when you started? (laughs)
1: <laughs> how much time have you got uh, i mean <laughs> this is 60
0: seconds Asta. see so you've got about 60, 45 seconds no, 60 seconds let's, I mean, let's go 60 seconds from now
1: <laughs> one of the many things i wish i knew now was that being more focused on what company targets you have like what prospects you have what company personas you have and specifically what marketing qualified leads look like while scary to make a priori decisions. Is absolutely the right thing to do. I wish we had been even more focused on that at the beginning.
0: Brilliant, you did that very well. Uh, tough, t- <laughs> tough t- 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 on that. Um, what, uh, what then? Final, final quickfire. What one character trait do you look for in any new sales hire? What do they have to have?
1: Uh, I'm tempted to say sense of humor. Really? Because, why, why? Uh, <laughs> because you know it sets people apart. Like, everyone's got to be relatively smart. Everyone's got to be hardworking. Everyone's got to be somewhat knowledgeable and personable. Um, They have a varied degree of analytical ability. But, um, you know, startup life is tough. Rolling with the punches and all the changes and dealing with rejection is the most challenging part of sales, and especially startup sales. So if you don't have a sense of humor, then your life gets pretty dark pretty quickly.
0: Mm -hmm. No, it's it's interesting. Uh, the other day, my website went down. And for the first time ever, it was one of the worst things that happened in, in my business. And, and I didn't quite know how to deal with the rejection. How do you deal with very difficult times? When they do occur? What's your kind of framework?
1: My basic framework, and I learned this in my first sales job, uh, my first sales job was going door to door. Uh, for a nuclear weapons freeze campaign, a, a Washington-based lobby trying to stop uh, nuclear weapon prolifer- proliferation. And you know, you're know you knocking on somewhere between uh, 10 and 75 doors a night asking for donations. Uh, as you can imagine, with that kind of topic, you get a, a wide variety of uh, rejections from, uh, no, thank you to, you know, don't even come to the door to like outright hostility, get off my doorstep, you hippies scumbag <laughs> Um, and <laughs> the thing that I learned from that is just as you walk to the next door, or as you put down the phone and prepare to make another dial, or as you prepare to send the next email, you have to basically try to drop whatever happened in the, in the past. And you should really not stop, start the next activity until you've somewhat dropped the results of the previous activity. Because if you don't drop it, then you just carry that on into the next conversation and it tends to poison the day. But if instead of um, carrying it on, you sort of stop, take a breath, you know, let the anger and frustration and feeling of rejection and personal affront, you know, go, then pick up the phone, uh, you have a much better chance of success.
0: You're right. If only you were there the other day, you could have calmed <laughs> harry (laughs) harry weeping at his sight being down (laughs) what a loser What Um, what did you do what did you do I I WhatsApped a friend of mine who's a CTO at a company and said, "Please help me," uh, crying face, and he did help yeah.
1: me. Yep, yeah. great. Right. So he helped great. me. Yeah,
0: so now you can go to my website, which hopefully is still up. Um, <laughs> but then I've I've got a long form one for you now, and, and the last long form. And we mentioned data earlier, and kind of the role of data now allows managers to have a much greater view of of everyone's activity. And so I'm always intrigued as to activity management and to what extent we should do with this and in new do with this as a manager of a sales team now being the founder? And and at what stage management then becomes micromanagement?
1: Uh, this is an excellent question. Um, the, the, y- y- you have to start by judging by results. So the, the salesperson who uh, continually beats their number but doesn't make the activity metrics is not somebody that I would insist make their, beat their activity metrics. The salesperson who's new and we don't know where they're at, they have to make their activity metrics. And the salesperson who is not making their number has to make their activity metrics because it's really the starting point, but it's certainly not the it's not the goal. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, I do. I, I do. It, it just seems strange. Is there not an onboarding time where the activity metrics uh, can wane a little, not wane a little, but start off slower while someone embeds themselves in a company with the company culture and a new team? Is that not uh, possible to give them that gentler onboarding?
1: Most companies have a what's called a ramp where they, they project that a new salesperson will slowly ramp up to productivity. And that ramp can, can be anywhere from you know one to six or even 12 months, um, depending on the complexity of the sale. So during that time, the salesperson is coming up to speed, learning the product, learning the competition, learning the uh, common objections, etc. That doesn't mean that their activity needs to be low. You know, I think after that point, if the person's great, then they don't need to do the numbers. They don't need to, you know, make 200 calls a day. But there's a very common correlation between activity and success in sales. There's that wonderful phrase, you know, the the harder I work, the luckier I get, which very much plays out in, in sales activity. So I would say it's the rare salesperson who can not work that hard and still beat their number.
0: I think in life, the harder you work, the luckier you get. But, but, but Matthew, it's been such a pleasure to have you on. As I said, I really wanted to make it happen after the the tweet. And amazing how Twitter can do it. So, thank you so much for joining me today uh, and for sharing the story with Yesware.
1: It's a real pleasure, Harry. And if any of your readers want to reach out and contact me directly with questions, my email address is just Matthew M A T T H E W at Yesware y e s w a r e dot com.
0: Well, there you go. Now you have Matthew's email, so you can email him all your challenging questions from today's episode, and I want to say a huge thank you to Matthew for giving up his time today to be on the show. And if you love the show and want to stay in the world of Sasta, then you can follow me on Snapchat at hstebbings, or the main man Jason Lemkin on Twitter at jasonlk. And if you'd like to see the catalogue of past episodes and articles from Sasta, all you have to do is head over to sasta.com. That's s-a-a-s-t-r.com. As always, I so appreciate all your support. You can always email me too just like matthew on harry at the 20 minute vc.com and i look very forward to bringing you friday's episode